and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in the country, starting from about 1839, going all the way up to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years, and this podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Um, if you'd like to support the, the podcast, you can uh, rate and review and subscribe on all platforms. Uh, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast if you'd like to give to support the podcast. You can subscribe to the Substack. Uh, I periodically update it with show notes. Uh, ChineseRevolutions.substack.com, or please send me an email at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. How is this podcast helping you? What is it helping you to do? What do you think it could help you to do? Uh, so please do send me an email. That will help me very much. Here we go. Uh, today we're kind of shifting gears a bit. Uh, uh, much of, okay, uh, again, we're kind of following Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt, but not so much this episode. We spent the last couple of episodes on the Second Opium War. Uh, it, you know, it's an important detail, but I'm not telling the story of foreigners in China. I'm looking at the changes within China because of revolutions. The Taiping Revolution while interesting, isn't the main thing. The interesting things in the Taiping Revolution, for my purposes, are the things you don't get in your high school history class. But then, of course, you might not have talked much about it in your high school history class, except perhaps a snarky comment about it being amusing that Hong Xiuquan thought he was Jesus' younger brother. That's how it was in my class, anyway. What's interesting is how the Taiping Rebellion forced changes in Chinese society, how China reshaped itself in response to foreign pressure and influence, and the kinds of people who emerged as being the game-changers, the people who came up with the ideas that changed things. Also, because this is my podcast, I can do anything I want, and as long as I'm continuing to tell you a constant story, we're good. So, to kind of recap, for me and for you, the, the Taiping Rebellion is destroying lots and lots of China. Formerly productive areas are now unproductive, Qing forces are focused on crushing the Taiping, and so this reduces forces available to suppress banditry. There's the Nian Rebellion uh, somewhere up in North China, bandits running amok. And the prolongation of internal conflict continues to open China up to foreign intervention that can't be resisted. You know, smugglers are doing trade with the Taiping, taking tea, silk, pottery, those things, out of Taiping areas not under the official control of the government of all of China. Uh, so, you know, think of conflict diamonds, conflict minerals. A rebel group offers resources to outside players for money to buy weapons. You know, drug running by the FARC in Colombia. You know, they were Marxist guerrillas in the Colombian jungle, and you know, they would 
assassinate and kidnap government officials, uh, police officers, soldiers. But they would also run drugs because that would get them money. Uh, the South in the American Civil War, trading cotton during the war, you know, that was, you know, the rebellion was against the sovereignty of the you know, Union, but it was, you know, so then the rebels running cash crops out to Europe, well, that's, you know, that's a serious breach of United States national sovereignty. So, that's, you know, China is in this prostrate position where they can't control the areas controlled by the rebels, and so it just allows more areas for foreigners to get in. Uh, and so they their, their internal forces are focused on defeating the Taiping, so they can't defeat foreign aggression, and later foreign intervention puts the ruling regime more perilously at the feet of foreign powers, so you know, revolutionaries are going to decide the the Qing are going to have to go. No matter, you know, even the you know they're they're the Manchu foreigners, you know, but they're not even succeeding as a Chinese dynasty, which they were trying to be. You know, I'm going to posit for the moment that the Taiping Rebellion is the last hurrah for a serious attempt to establish a Chinese dynasty. There would be one or two other very very short lived attempts, so we'll we'll look at those. Uh, you know, we'll just look at those as something rattling around in China being shaken. I, I argue this because the next most successful revolution will be abolishing the dynastic system, not taking the next turn as another dynasty. You know, like replacing a king with a president kind of thing. You know, someone is still in charge, but it was a revolution, and uh, government is organized on very different ideas now. The next revolution will be taking on ideas from outside China, so attempts to set up a next emperor or to reinstall the last emperor will be an interesting phenomenon, uh, but it's rather... but it, it's not going to be a serious attempt to sustain the dynastic system. So it's kind of proof of the of how dynamic history it is. How dynamic history is. It becomes a tradition because new people choose, you know, make a fresh choice to confirm the, the past precedent. But of course, you can set a new precedent. You know, so we'll be zooming in on someone I've been very excited to be getting to. We're going to talk about Zheng Guofan today. He lived from 1811 to 1872. He was a Confucian scholar from Hunan, right around where intense campaigning in the war has been taking place. He attained the highest possible levels of the Confucian civil service exam system. He was not a military man. He was a scholar. Scholar, scholar, scholar. There was not a military bone in his body. It's not that he didn't have the moral fortitude to be able to, you know, take responsibility for great undertakings. It's just he was not a military man. One question about Zheng Guofan is why he didn't take the forces that he raised and organized north to overthrow the Qing. He's going to raise forces to crush the Taiping Rebellion in a novel way for, for the time. And they were loyal to him and his personal network, not loyal to the Qing government. 
not directly. They were loyal to Zheng Guofan, and then through him he was serving the Qing. You know, he's an ethnic Han, not a Manchu, so of course you know he could have done something to replace the rotten head and install something more to the liking of the Han, but he doesn't do that. So that'll be maybe something that we explore a bit on down the line. He came from a poor but educated farming family. Incidentally, this is very similar to Hong Xiuquan's family background. His father was in middle age when he passed the lowest level civil service examinations, like 45, 50. But in 1833, the next year, Zheng Guofan passed it when he was 22, the year after his father passed it. In 1838, he took the top degree and was appointed to the Hanlin Academy in Beijing. You know, he did have failures along the way, but he ex but he succeeded at the highest possible level in one of the fastest possible times. So yeah, okay, he you know he didn't win every game, but you know the the, the superstar is the superstar for a reason. The, the Hanlin Academy gave the official interpretation of Confucian texts. It interpreted precedents from past centuries and formulated policy for contemporary times. It tutored the imperial princes, so they had huge influence on future emperors. Uh, the it was the introduction to an elite social world, you know, of the empire, and it helped with building connections, all important in Chinese culture even today. It was a source of wealth. You know, gifts from subordinates trying to gain the favor of their superiors, gifts and rewards from above. We're going to make a pretty big uh, side tangent here. You know, contrast this with the evolving British reliance upon trade for wealth. What the opium traders, you know, British, um, did was to try to make money through trade and then go home and purchase an estate and so buy their way into the gentry. They'd buy their way into Parliament, either through buying an election through a rotten borough, or one way or another by an, like, somehow contrive an appointment to the House of Lords. You know, and their, they had their money based on trade and industry, often trade and industry somewhere far from Britain. Like, if you ever read Jane Eyre, the money that Mr. Rochester had, okay, well, he had been in the Caribbean... And, you know, I mean, like, they're kind of silent about what industry it was that got people money over there, but he, you know, he was one of the, you know, I, I imagine he was part of the slaveholding class, like, like on Barbados or something. Don't hold me to that. It's, it's one of, he was on one of the Caribbean islands, and that's probably where they were doing slavery. I don't remember if it was Barbados or what. And Jane Eyre herself inherited something from some rich relative who passed it on to her. Uh, the Chinese empire was inclined toward an extractive system for gaining wealth. Now, every economy is a mix of industry and extraction. But the critical decision will be how the state chooses to employ force to protect sources of legitimacy. So, drawing on... Okay, there's an author, Peter Padfield, who wrote a series on maritime supremacy. 
so maritime supremacy and the opening of the Western mind, covering the period from 1588 to 1782, maritime power and the struggle for freedoms, going from 1788 to 1851, maritime dominion and the triumph of the free world, 1852 to 2001. I've read the first two books, and so a lot of my thinking is following what I got from that reading. So the the difference in motivation for conquerors is kind of one kind versus another. You know, you could coerce me by force, but then I, being human, will slack off when you're not watching so I can survive. Or you could reward me, give me ownership in the, the big game, and I'll work hard even when you're not watching me. So how do we connect this back to Chinese revolutions. Well, the ultimate goal of all of the revolutions is going to be, one, a restoration of Chinese sovereignty, that China controls what China does for China's own reasons, two, solidification of the economy that, as a system, rewards free enterprise, because that's where you're going to have modern power coming from. Like, yeah, okay, you could have a big army, but unless you have the money to, unless you have the economy behind you to be able to produce modern weapons and produce modern gear and modern technology, you're going to be way, way behind the people who can do that. And so that's going to mean capitalism, that more or less capitalism. That's what's going to have to happen. You know, and we'll talk about that when we get to the communist era. Deng Xiaoping is going to seriously shake up the Chinese economy. Okay, then three, the allotment of state power to protect the production of resources and rule-based distribution of rewards for that production. It's like, so if you come up with a billion-dollar idea and you get a billion dollars for it, that's you know, maybe you're not the strongest guy in the world able to protect yourself and force everybody to give you a billion dollars. But, you know, that's the rules. You come up with a billion dollar idea, you get a billion dollars. If a country can do that, that's a serious superpower. And so we're not going to see this happen for China until the Communist Party of China wins the Chinese Civil War and solidifies control of China. Even during the nationalist era, the foreigners had very substantial holdings on the Chinese coast. The Japanese invasion is really going to screw everything up. But it's not until they're all defeated and out, and that's not going to happen until after the Chinese Civil War is over. Uh, so that's, that's where we're going. With Zheng Guofan, we see one possible way that revolution could have gone. I don't know how far we can explore in that direction, but I'll talk about it a little bit right now. As he lived in Beijing, he was wary of corruption. He came under influence of a group of scholars advocating for a moral code called Neo-Confucianism, including self-discipline and personal development. And in anything, the human element is probably the most important element. Perhaps for Zheng Guofan, his wealth was something like a promotion from a $20,000 a year job, like maybe you're working fast food full-time or part-time or something, to getting a $200,000 a year job. So his new salary would help him clear away many 
tens of thousands of dollars of debt and to provide for his family, you know, he's, he's serious, he's, you know, much, much better off now, but the new job isn't him making millions when his salary is one-fifth of a, of one million per year. You know, so he's entering the, you know, he's, he's entering a much richer, much nicer class, but what I gather from what I've read is he's not building mansions for himself, um, crammed with all sorts of luxuries. So we're going to wrap it up here for this episode. If Zheng Guofan had been the one to end the Qing dynasty and replace it with a Han-led regime, would they have been able to push out foreign influence? Would they have been able to adapt to a new economy and run a more functional political system you know, as, uh, as modern international standards were going? We'll see how he manages to suppress the Taiping Rebellion through some novel innovations. His appointment to the job will basically be a superior who knew him, saying to the emperor, this is a man we can trust to find the right answer. Again, he's not a military man, but he was trusted to be able to know how to manage the political details to implement the answer. In a revolution, ideology can be a course of strength source of strength. Or it can be the thing that weighs you down. Someone like Zheng Guofan, who believed it, you know, believed in something outside himself, who could manage the human element, could try anything for the sake of what he valued. Uh, but then, you know, he'd have to manage his dislikes in order to find the solutions that would work. So we'll see how he relates to foreign support for the Qing efforts against the Taiping Rebellion, because he, he's not he's not a fan of foreigners, but he's also trying to do the job of suppressing the rebellion. So thanks again for listening to this episode. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can rate and review on all platforms. Please share with your friends. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can go to chineserevolutions.substack.com. And please, please, please send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Do you like it? Do you hate it? Uh, please let me know. And I'll catch you again on the next episode.